Good afternoon, everyone. Good to be together. Welcome to our guests online. We're a couple of months from the Feast of Trumpets. It's good to have that reminder every Sabbath, as Pastor Adrian gave to us. Lisa and Landon, uh, wish uh, wish you a good Sabbath. They're in the middle of the Rocky Mountains now visiting her brother, so they miss you, but only a little bit because of how beauty the beauty that they're surrounded by. But they're looking forward to being back here in a couple of weeks. I heard it once said that the two best organizations for pomp and ceremony are the British monarchy and the Montreal Canadiens of the NHL. If you're a Canadian sports buff, you might, you may or may not agree with the Montreal Canadiens being placed on that list. I'm a Leaf fan, so shout out to all of the Montreal Canadiens fans who may be watching. But if you've ever seen a British royal marriage, a funeral, or a coronation, you would be hard-pressed to find ceremony done better. I would place, if you're asking me, I would place the inauguration of the President of the United States on that list as well. Ceremony is defined as a formal religious or public occasion as well as the ritual observances and procedures performed at these occasions. When you think of ceremony in our church culture, and I'll kind of open this up and uh, to the group here, give you a second to think about it, what comes to mind when you think of ceremony in our church culture? Baptisms? Any, any other offerings? as far as ceremonies in church culture, offerings, ordinations, laying out of hands for the sick, anointing, absolutely. So we have various types of ceremony in the church of God culture. Baptism, marriage, funeral, offerings, conferring blessings upon children, uh, ordination, anointing. There, there are many. When I was a boy, some would, include, some would include discipline in this list of laying on of hands. We don't, we don't do that anymore. We, at least we don't formally include that on the list anymore. We, and we won't certainly do that today. What do these events have in common? Obviously, these ceremonial offerings, these ceremonial rituals have laying on of hands in common. In some respect, in almost all respects, these items incorporate some type of laying on of hands in most cases. Typically, there is a place of the one conducting the ceremony, with the exception of a funeral and I suppose the exception of the offering, to lay hands on the participants, although we do offer, uh, we do locally offer uh, prayers to God to accept our offerings. So I suppose there's an element of laying on of hands there as well. As we begin, let's go to Hebrews chapter 6, if you would. Hebrews chapter 6. As you turn there, I'm using a new Bible today. It's a large print edition. I'm starting to feel the effects of age a little bit. Last time I spoke, I used my regular edition, and I couldn't get the angle right with eyesight changing. So I've got a large print edition. It's looking much better from this angle, actually. So we'll start in Hebrews chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 1, 
where Paul says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So as we begin here, we'll just review the concepts here. We studied the book of Hebrews on the weekly studies a couple of years ago. And we know that this word perfection is the word teleos, which talks about completeness. And completeness or perfection, that's the example that Christ came, who lived a complete and perfect life to show us the way into to um, take on the, uh, to show that the, the covenant that God made with Israel can be kept. And then he qualified in that regard as our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. But the context here goes back to verse 12 of the previous chapter, where Paul, to this group of, of believers, says, for, by though, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have both their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again. And then he lists the, the basic doctrines that he's encouraging them to move, to move on from. So we see here the difference between what Paul would call basic doctrines and meteor teachings. For those, again, following along week to week here in our messages and on the weekly Bible studies, I dare say that we are subject to meteor teachings more often than not. But as you review this list, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment... Doesn't the laying on of hands seem out of place in this list of of teachings? These are deep topics. Repentance, faith, baptism, resurrection, and judgment. Those are foundational teachings upon which we build and move into the meteor teachings. It strikes me that the laying on of hands included in this list is misplaced. It, it sort of stands out. I don't know if you remember Sesame Street when you were younger, which of these things does not belong. And it was obviously, and then the, the, the light would, uh, would fade on one of the squares because it was very clear something didn't belong. This seems to not belong. Yet Paul includes it here. If you're reading the New King James Version, the word elementary is a word that's added in the New King James Version. In the original text, it is simply principles. Let us, leaving the discussion of the principles of Christ, The word principles in Strong's refers to the beginning teachings or anything by which anything or that which by anything begins to be, which really refers to the basic and foundational teachings of Christ. So what I'd like to do today, this afternoon, is look through and walk through and take a look at this basic principle, this elementary teaching of Christ called the laying on of hands. Where is it used? Why is it used? What makes it part of? Why did Paul include it in this list of basic and elementary principles of, of Christ? And what can we, as the body of Christ, learn from it? 
So as we begin, we're going to spend the first few minutes going through the various uses of laying on of hands. Where can we find them in Scripture? Let's begin back in Numbers chapter 8. Numbers chapter 8. We won't make too many comments as we go through this. I want to level set here and look at, scripturally, the uses of this ceremony called the laying on of hands. We'll begin in Numbers chapter 8. I've made a, I think I've made a, yeah, there we go, verse 9. Numbers chapter 8, verse 9. New Bibles. And you shall bring the Levites before the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall gather together the whole congregation of the children of Israel. So shall you bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel, that they may perform the work of the Lord. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the young bulls, and you shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. So here we see, and again, we're going to go quickly through the, this list so we can get to the, the why and what we can learn from it in the second half of the message. But here we see it, it in indicating the uh, use of laying on of hands through the concept of ordination. Here, this is the installation of the Levitical priesthood. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 19. We use the term ordination today to talk about being elevated into offices in the church, but these are concepts that are used back in the Torah and in the Hebrew scriptures. So 1 Kings chapter 19, we'll pick it up in verse 15. This is, you recall the Elisha feeling very alone, in his in his walk with God. The Lord, in verse 15 of chapter 19, we'll read verses 15 through 18, And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king of Syria, and you shall also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So here we see the use of the laying on of hands to not only anoint Elisha as a prophet over Israel, but also in the the uh, coronation or the the selecting of the kings of these countries. Let's go to Acts 6. We'll read one more verse as it relates to to ordination. And notice here in the selection of the original diaconate, we find in Acts chapter 6, verses 2 to 6. Now, as I say, we're going to be flying through some scriptures here at the beginning, and then we'll get to the the meatier part of the message in the second half. So Acts chapter 6, verse 2, for time's sake, we'll cut into the context. We'll read verses 2 through 6. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. 
But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them, referring to the, the twelve, then laid hands upon the those that were chosen for the diaconate. So here we see from the Hebrew scriptures through to the New Testament church, this concept of the laying on of hands being used in the what we would call ordination. We saw back in 1 Kings 19 that Elijah selected Jehu and the, I don't recall the other, the other fellow from Syria, but in the selection of a king, there, the laying on of hands was also used in the old, in the Hebrew scriptures. We, uh, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. And we'll see the selection of Saul. We'll read a few scriptures, a few verses from 1 Samuel chapter 9. Verses 15 through 16 and then verse 27 is where we'll go. And as you're turning there, the context for this scripture is 1 Samuel chapter 8, where Israel rejected Samuel's leadership. And they wanted a king because they wanted to be like the rest of the nations. In chapter 9, verse 15, we read, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry has come to me. And then dropping down to verse 27, As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, But you stand here a while, that I may announce to you the word of God. So here, this we're starting to get in behind the scenes as, as to what a lay, the laying on of hands has really has to do with, and it is God's direction through these servants that he has chosen to lead his people. We'll continue down into the next, the next chapter, verse 1 of chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? So Samuel's doing the anointing. Samuel is the one that is pouring the oil on Saul's head. Samuel is the one who's laying his hands on Saul. But Samuel takes himself right out of the picture. And he is very clear here when he, when he is, when he says here that it is the Lord who is anointing Saul. It is, it is the Lord's choice. Dropping down to verse 17. Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And now we see another element here where this is now becoming public in front of the assembly of Israel. And said to the children of Israel, thus says the Lord God. We're going to read verses 17 through 24. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you've said to him, no, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your clans. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. And when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? 
And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. So they ran and brought him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. So God acquiesced here a little bit and gave in to their demands and allowed them to have a king, but it was God's decision to allow them to have a king. And he, he communicated that through Samuel, and Saul was chosen. And there was no argument from the people. Long live the king. Samuel has spoken. Long live the king. It is still God's choice at this point. First Samuel 16 is when David was selected. Let's go there. Read verses 7 through 13 of 1 Samuel 16. And again, feel free to read around it and get the full grasp of the story. We're just going to cut in for time's sake in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. You recall that Samuel was sent to the house of Jesse to select Saul's replacement. And... Jesse had a number of strapping young sons who, by any stretch, could and should have been chosen as king from a human perspective. But it wasn't God's decision for any of them. Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, verse 7, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the young men here? There remains yet the youngest, and there he is out there keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So clearly what we see here is when God speaks through his servant, no one's arguing here. God is When God makes his selection through the one that is deemed the servant and the overseer, no one, no one seems to be arguing here. They all thought it would, should have been one of the other sons. But when Samuel conveyed God's, God's intent, he said, it, it's, it, it's none of these. There was no argument. There was no argument. Blessing of children. Let's go to Genesis chapter 48 and let's look at another example here of the use of the laying on of hands. Genesis 48, pick it up in verse 9. We'll read verses 9 through 14. Joseph said to his father, Genesis 48, They are my sons, whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, 
I had not thought to see your face. But in fact, God has also shown me in your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Note the structure that was in place. Joseph objected. Jacob insisted. Joseph ceased his objection. It's important to make note of that because this is what we're going to see when we get down into the meteor part of this is this is the lesson that comes along with the laying on of hands. Joseph gave his opinion. Jacob said no. Joseph relented and allowed Jacob's Jacob's decision to stand. This is just one example. We know that Jacob was the recipient of the same ceremony when he received the birthright from his father Isaac. Let's go to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. We don't baptize youth here in the church of God, for they are not able to make a mature or an informed decision on repentance. They don't really understand the gravity of sin. They don't have the experience and the, the, the level of maturity to make these informed decisions. But we follow the example of Christ in conferring a blessing upon them. We'll pick it up here in verse 13 of Matthew 19. Verses 13 through 15. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed. Uh, sorry, the word his actually is in italics. That's important to make note of that. The, the text actually says, and he laid hands on them. And that, that really refers to the ceremony that we're talking about. He laid hands on them and departed from there. So again, we we use a form of this ceremony in the Church of God in conferring a blessing at the parents' request upon young children. Often we do it at the feast. It's it's exciting to see it done at the feast in front of uh, all these people and to do it to do as many as we possibly can. There's of course baptism. Let's go to Acts chapter two. And look at the first example, the, the, not necessarily the first. We see other examples of the Spirit being given to David, as we just read. But here on Mass, 
when the Holy Spirit, they were to wait until the Feast of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, to receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 38, Peter said to them, sorry, verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children, to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And those who were gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, it, it clearly doesn't say the laying on of hands here, but when we, and we'll walk through some of the, some of the scriptures here, the, we incorporate the laying on of hands in the baptism ceremony to confer upon the recipient the Holy Spirit in asking God to give his Holy Spirit to the newly baptized individual. There is no marriage ceremony in Scripture the way we do it today. If you've uh, uh, had the opportunity to hear Deacon Jan gave a message on the Jewish wedding ceremony some years ago, there are indications and there are teachings about the wedding ceremony here. But in performing Christian marriages today, we do so before God, with Jesus Christ as an active participant in the marriages of the faithful. So in blessing a marriage and bringing the two individuals together as one, we ask for God's blessing upon them and typically, while praying, lay our hands on the joined hands of the individuals and in such a way ask God to bless this Christian marriage. This is an adaptation of the concept of the laying on of hands. And we'll get into adaptations of concepts when we get into the meteor portions. But this is one way that we confer the laying on of hands in a ceremony that we use today called the marriage ceremony. Now let's go back to Genesis 24. There's something interesting I want to show and we'll look at here. We're not going to get too off into a tangent too far here. But this is all part and parcel of understanding. And we'll dig a little deeper, as I said, a little bit later into this. That the laying on of hands... At the, the foundational part of the laying on of hands is to, is to understand that we are following God's will and seeking God's will in these ceremonial rituals or ordinances that we would keep. Genesis 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well, inv- well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son, must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, who spoke to me and swore to me, saying to your descendants, I will give this land. And we've done a lot of study in recent uh, years and months about this. 
He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you are released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now, we won't get off too far on a tangent in this. Perhaps we can discuss it amongst ourselves in the after-sermon discussion. But this is almost a laying on of hands in reverse here. Because Abraham needed to ensure his servant understood his wishes because his wishes were in line with God's wishes. And by placing his hand under his thigh, he was ceding to Abraham's authority. You are, you are without, when your hand is under someone's thigh and someone, if that's where it is, you have, you are, have given up your, your right to your use of your hands. You are, you are ceding your authority to Abraham. And he's committing to fulfilling his wishes and finding his son and his wife. And the servant was bound by this oath in ensuring that God's wishes through Abraham were going to be fulfilled in the selection of a wife. Let's go to James chapter 5. James 5. We'll look at the concept of anointing. James chapter 5. Christ often touched people and healed them. It was a critical part of his ministry. In fact, if you go right back to the beginning of Matthew 4, he preached, he taught, and he healed. Those were the three things that developed a following for him to then uh, bounce off of that, those foundational concepts, and preach the kingdom of God. We know that John testified in his gospel about these, these types of healings, and it was part of the evidence that John used to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. Here in verse 16 of James chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 16. James says, Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We use this concept in asking prayer requests of the brethren. So we beseech God on behalf of our loved ones, our friends, our, our, our fellow disciples of Christ, to God for healing. In both the physical and spiritual senses, we pray for each other to ask for God's mercy and intervention. But there's a place for something more. Something in addition to asking the, for the prayers of the righteous. Let's go back to verse 6, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed trespasses, he will be forgiven. There is a place for something more than just the, not just, but in addition to the prayers of the righteous. The anointing, when a person, and if you, you look at this word sick, it refers to diseased, feeble, and weak. The, I personally don't ask for anointing for colds. Colds are just part of the everyday life. If you choose to ask for anointing, that, that's, that's between you and your father. But when we are hurting, when we're in, in a state where we need the prayers of God's people, there's also an opportunity 
to follow the instructions of Scripture and ask for anointing. In this case, not just the laying on of hands, as we've seen in some cases, but much like in the, the coronation or the selection of the kings, done with oil. Let's go back to Acts 19. This is the last of the examples we're going to quickly go through. There may be others, and we can talk about that in the after-sermon discussion. But Acts 19, verse 11, verse 11 and 12. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. The church has adapted this case to help cover the expanse of miles, and to the best of our abilities, follow the instructions God gave through James, we anoint a cloth with oil, and pray over the cloth, and send it to the person who has requested anointing, but is in a location that we cannot reach. And the church has adapted this concept to Again, as I said, to the best of our abilities, follow God's instruction to James in calling for the elders of the church. So that is the list of the the examples from the the Hebrew scriptures and into the the New Testament scriptures, the Greek scriptures, where this concept of laying on of hands is used in various cases. I just want to pause for a minute and make sure that there are any questions or clarifications before we get into the meatier parts of of, of the, and ask why, and really dig into why this is so prevalent here. Any any clarifications before we move on? We can get into the, uh, we can dig deeper here in the after-sermon discussion. Let's go to, now what we want to talk about here are the lessons we can learn from this. We want, When we went into Hebrews chapter 6 and we looked at the elementary principles, it was listed there. So we've covered the elementary part. Let's talk why. Let's get into the meat, the, the meat of this message. Let's begin in John chapter 4. I propose, I'd like to propose three reasons that this concept of laying on of hands is listed alongside those other doctrines that form the foundation in Hebrews chapter 6. And we'll begin in John chapter 4. As we go there, John will read verses 21 through 24. And again, we don't have time to really dig into the context here, but just to cover a little bit, and if you recall our studies, our earlier studies on the beginning parts of John, this lady was a Samaritan, part of the covenant people's DNA, but looked down on Jews for having mixed blood and for developing their own worship system in competition to the worship system that God gave Israel. In fact, even a different location, as, as is noted here. It's much deeper than this, but that's just sort of very high-level summary of what we see here in the this lady being a, a Samaritan woman. Verse 21 is where we'll pick it up. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. And I think that was Mount Gerizim, where, that, where, the, where the Samaritans worshipped in relation to this, in a similar vein that the, the Jews did for Mount Sinai. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. We start to see some of these concepts that, that we've been studying, 
that there is one way to salvation. God was, God was telling this woman, Christ was telling this woman, there is one way to salvation, and it is through the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and down through with Israel. You worship what you do not know, but we know what we worship. And for salvation is of the Jews, and it is through Israel that we will be redeemed, that you, that you have an opportunity for redemption. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. True believers worship in spirit and truth, is what we see here. Again, very deep subject when we consider this concept of worshiping in spirit and in truth. But followers of God, that the way, the one way to salvation is to accept the blood of Jesus Christ and receive his Holy Spirit, as we read in Acts chapter 2 relative to baptism, and to follow his law, his word, both the Hebrew scriptures and then ultimately what we have here, the New Testament scriptures. God is spirit, verse 24, says, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This word worship is the Greek word proskuneo. It's 4352 in the Strong's Greek concordance. And it means to prostrate, prostrate oneself in homage or reverence. To prostrate oneself in homage or reverence. Among, that's one of the definitions. Think back to all the examples we noted with the laying on of hands. Is this not part of our worship with God? When we bow our heads and let someone assume an authoritative position over us representing God, when we fold our hands and have their hands placed over our hands or allow someone to take our children up in his arms to bless them, this is an act of complete submission to an overseer who is representing the Father. To God, an act of complete submission to God through the person who is representing them. I am see- It's like we are telling God, I am seeking your will, Father, in this regard. When we bow our heads, when we fold our hands and put them in a non-confrontational point of view, we are removing all indication of us being anything on the offensive, that we are simply in a form of submission. And this is part of how we worship God, prostrating ourselves before God in a way that shows him complete submission. Let's go to Matthew 12. This concept that we're looking at here is one of the lessons we get from the laying on of hands and the various uses of it is we serve and worship Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, the one and true way through his Son, Jesus Christ, to eternal life. He is the God of the Bible. There is one way to do things, not any way, not any ways that the world comes up with. There is one specific way, and we find it here in the pages of our Bible. What we'll see here is through the laying on of hands ceremonies, we are showing God that we believe that, that we are in complete submission to him and his way. Matthew 12, verse 31 and 32 We covered this in a recent live Q&A on the weekly Bible studies, but consider this passage relative to the topic that we're talking about. 
Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. If denying the power of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable, wouldn't submitting to it help affirm our faith in God? By prostrating ourselves in these ceremonies and accepting that we are submitting before God, and he's acting through whatever form of leadership is in front of us, isn't this the opposite of the unforgivable sin? and acknowledging the power that God uses through his Holy Spirit. And submitting to it helps affirm that faith in God, in his power, and in his word. And it's actually the antidote to ensuring we never reach a point in life where we deny the power of the Holy Spirit. If we view these opportunities in these ceremonial opportunities with the laying on of hands, actually acts as an antidote that we acknowledge the power of the Holy Spirit and we will never, ever succumb to this unforgivable sin. So I submit that each time we follow the example in Scripture and have laid hands upon us through anointing, through baptism, through ordination, through the blessing of children, through marriage, we are reaffirming our submission to God and Jesus Christ. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10 and move on to the second reason. The second reason we're going to look at is that we actually learn from these ceremonies. We as the people of God, the ones that should be moving on from these elemental, elementary found principles into the meteor topics, we actually learn again through these experiences. And as you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, those of you who are married, what comes to mind when you attend a wedding? I'm opening this up. What comes to mind? When you attend a wedding, what comes to mind? Who doesn't think of your own wedding? I always go back and think of my own wedding. Always. We talk about it on the, on the way there. We talk about it on the way back. It becomes less about the wedding we're at and more an affirmation that this is a, a significant part of our lives. What about at the feast when we baptize people? Those of you who are baptized, what comes to mind when we watch a baptism? Who doesn't think of their own baptism? I, m- I remember exactly where I was, July 31st, 1992, the basement in my home, my father baptizing me. I think of it every time I baptize someone, every single time. What about at the feast when we bless children? I think of my own children every single time. Every single time. What about ordinations? If you've had, those are rare, but when we see ordinations, that becomes an oversight. We, we immediately, like, like Samuel, like the people in Samuel, or children of Israel when they were installing the Levitical priesthood, this person takes on a different concept in our minds because they have been ordained within the church. What about funerals? What about funeral? What comes to mind when you attend a funeral and hear a funeral sermon? You think of 
all of these concepts that this person has lived by, the the pillar that they have been in in the faith, the the that you will see them again. It reaffirms for you that you will see them again, that this hope in the resurrection that Paul talks to us about, that Christ talks to us about. One of the one of the most significant honors I have had in this in my life as a, as an elder was performing the funeral service of Brother Francis. What an honor to stand before his family, who I never knew, his friends who I never knew, and tell them about my brother, to tell them what this man stood for, all that he lived his life for, all the why he is sure he will rise and live again, the hope that this conveys. Whether they believe it now or not is irrelevant. It's, it, was, it, was a, it was a privilege and an honor that I had an opportunity to give the message in laying our brother to rest. We learn from these ceremonies. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll go to verse 6, and then we'll read after verse 6, we'll jump down to verse 11 and 12. Now these things, again, looking back to the children of Israel, so let's be less concerned about what they're talking about in this. Let's look at this concept of these examples. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And then he goes through and provides some examples for them to look back on and be reminded of. Verse 11 says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Every time I attend a a baptism, every time I attend a wedding, every time I attend a funeral, I am strengthened by the messages that I hear. My marriage is stronger because I am forced to go back and relive it. I'm forced to go back and contemplate it again. When we counsel or baptize people, I am forced to convey why they want to be baptized because I was baptized. In a funeral, I am, I am forced to, to consider and be strengthened by the hope that is within me. We learn from these, these examples. Let's jump over to chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Imitate me, Paul says, just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. And keep, if you're reading the King James, it will say ordinances. If you're reading the New King James, it will say traditions. In all things, and keep the ordinances or traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now this word for ordinances, which the New King James translates as traditions, is the word paradosis, 3862 in Strong's. And it refers to instructions handed over by word or mouth, by the word of mouth or in writing. And it can refer to, to traditions. And these traditions, when we, we, see, we can see examples in scripture, we see examples in our lives, are often developed based on adapting biblical concepts in a practical way. That's why there's no marriage ceremony laid out in scripture for us, but it makes sense when they are standing before a man of God to call for God's blessing and to do so by laying hands on their joint hands. 
it makes sense to, when we ask for the receipt of the Holy Spirit, even though it doesn't say so in Acts chapter 2, to use the laying on of hands so that it's less about, it's, it's completely not about the elder and all about submitting to the authority of God and conveying the Holy Spirit to the new individual. As long as our traditions point to Christ and do not override the Bible and are based on biblical concepts, these what we call ordinances, and point us to God, point us to Christ, point us to the Bible, they help reaffirm our faith. That's why ordinances handed down through rituals and, and teachings handed down through the written page or the oral word can be a good thing, can be a good thing. So we learn from these ceremonies. We are strengthened by them. The, there was a research article in 2015 in the United Kingdom by a group called YouGov, Y-O-U-G-O-V, YouGov. And it showed the following in 2015. 68% of Brits believe the monarchy is good for Britain. That was the result of this study. 62% of Brits believe there will still be a monarchy in 100 years. And 71% of Brits believe it should remain part of the British system, that that it should remain a monarchy, a constitutional monarchy. Why? As I, being here from the Dominion of Canada, we sort of have a dotted line attachment to this. But from my vantage point, way, way over here, on this side of of the ocean, doesn't Parliament oversee the day-to-day affairs of the people. I think that's what happens. But the monarchy, replete with all the pomp and circumstance, is a link to a very long and proud past. It draws you in. It connects you with historical giants and gives one a sense of belonging to something important. Typically, we only witness this through uh, royal coronations, through royal births, through royal baptisms, through weddings and funerals. But look at what is conveyed on the, on, on, in the media for a wedding. Last, last year, Prince Harry married Meghan Markle. And the entire, the entire Western world came to a standstill for hours to watch this wedding. Because it connected them to something important. Something in their past made a, made a deep connection. What is our mandate as disciples of Christ? What is our mandate? To preach the gospel and make disciples. We find that in Matthew 28, uh, Mark 16, Luke 24, among other places. Our mandate as the disciples of Christ is to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Would anyone disagree with that? These ceremonies give us an opportunity to do just that, to preach the gospel. Back up, you're in 1 Corinthians 11. Back up one verse. Let's go to verse 32, 31 and 32 of chapter 10. And again, the context here refers to other things, but let's draw out the the biblical principle here. Verse 31, 
Therefore, of chapter 10, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to, to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Do all to the glory of God and what you do Ensure that you are profiting others, that they have an opportunity to be saved. And imitate me, so imitate me as I imitate Christ. There's a lesson that we can draw out of this as we consider ordinances or ceremonies in the church that we are a part of. As someone who serves in the capacity of an elder, it is a distinct privilege and honor to conduct some of these ceremonies. But we do so, or we should do so, and I hope I do so, with extreme humility and deep deliberation. Consider this. When we perform a baptism, and to do so in public, or if, if, you're, if they're not comfortable in public, to at least talk about the baptism afterwards and acknowledge their, their entrance into the body of Christ... We convey to anyone watching, and it's been interesting to do baptisms for a family member who brings their family that aren't members of the body. By doing so, we convey that there is one way to eternal life, and that is through Jesus Christ. We do that through the very concept of just performing a baptism. When we bless children, and, and my wife's parents are, are members of the body, other, other, other family members... People also have family members who aren't. But when we bless children, people often bring their family members with them to see this. This is a great opportunity in blessing children to the un- in front of the unconverted to acknowledge that it is Yahweh that gives life. We are in a society where people don't value life. They don't value children. And we won't even get off into tangents about where, where we could. But the blessing of little children gives us an opportunity to convey from the pages of Scripture, not even from the pages of Scripture, but through our actions, based on Scripture, an acknowledgement that it is Yahweh that gives life, that life is precious, that children are important to God and to the body of Christ. When we anoint, anointing is often done privately. Some have chosen to do it publicly. Either way, if you have an opportunity to be anointed, you have an opportunity to convey to unconverted family and friends that you were anointed through your church. Why? Because our God, the God of Israel, created life. Our God sustains life, and he is the great healer, and we serve according to his will. Marriage. Marriages, uh, weddings are often filled with the unconverted. The yeah, Christian marriage, a Christian wedding, often there are guests that are not converted. What a fabulous opportunity through through a brief wedding message to convey that our God is a God of covenant, that we learn to be an everlasting covenant with Him through the institution of marriage, and that marriage forms a foundation of a godly society. Anyone can see that, but what an opportunity to present that through a ceremony like this. Ordination. We don't see many ordinations. 
Let's go to Ephesians 4. Verses 11 through 13. When we witness an ordination, we see that God is a God of order and structure. And he gives some to serve in capacities for the equipping of saints for service and to edify the body. Paul says here in verse 11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the full measure of the stature and fullness of Christ. That word teleos that we talked about at the very beginning in Hebrews 6, this is part and parcel of where this comes in. So when we witness an ordination, and we pray that God blesses this, that this was done pro- through proper channels, through, through qu- the qualifications that are listed through Scripture, we acknowledge and recognize that God is a God of order and structure, and that we have more servants ready to equip us to make us better, so we may then make others better. Funerals. Now, we don't have laying on of hands at funerals, but this is all part and parcel of this whole this idea of ceremony. This is one final chance to preach the gospel through the commemoration of a dedicated servant of Christ. That there is hope in the resurrection. That death is not the end. And there will come a time when death ceases to be. What what more could a mourning person want to hear than there is hope? That death will eventually die. And again, the example, the, the, the experience I had with Brother Francis from Toronto. Let's go to Matthew 5. As we consider this third reason why ceremony is beneficial to the body of Christ. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 14 through 16. You, speaking to the covenant people of God, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If our mandate is to preach the gospel and make disciples, we have instruction here that we are not to hide under a basket. It's, it's not easy in this age of technology, in this age of, of, of people wanting privacy and to, 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 I'm a private individual. I, I'm not big on this, but my command here and from scriptures, I need to, I need to shed these things that weigh me down, and I need to follow this example. Don't miss opportunities that these ceremonies like this give us to shine light upon our Father and his way. Let's go to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Verse 10. 
And he said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of God. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. When we follow God's way, God's covenant people are to be the model by which the world will see the work of God. These ceremonies that we can share with others, whether we share them live or share the experience with them, baptisms, blessings, anointings, marriages, ordinations, funerals, baptisms, we shine the light upon the Father through these. And it is so important, this concept of being a model, that it, that it absolutely should drive our behavior at all times. When we consider the impact we have on others, it absolutely drives our behavior. We see that in verses 11 through 16. Following on the heels of, of God here telling Moses, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. I'm going to set the people up and all nations will look to it. And just follow me. And all nations will look and see what it means to be in covenant with me. Observe, verse 11, what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. So again, this concept we talked earlier about it teaching us, it helps protect us, helps teach us and prevent us from, from backsliding. Verse 13, but you shall destroy their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Lest, verse 15, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods. This is, this, this is part and parcel of the marriage ceremony. Talking about covenant. You, you, marriage being a, a, a lifelong covenant with one person eliminates the need for Israel to go harlot themselves out with other with with others make sacrifice to the gods continuing and one of them invites you and eat and you eat of his sacrifice and you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make you uh, make your sons play the harlot with their gods you shall make no molded gods for yourself so again this concept here that he was he was conveying to the children of Israel let's finish in Deuteronomy 4 where we had the scripture reading this concept that we just read in Matthew 5 and in Exodus 34 was repeated for the second generation of Israelites before they were to enter the promised land because it was such a foundational concept for the covenant people of God to understand. Surely, verse 5 through 10, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them. And when we see this, we can incorporate these things that we, these, these ordinances that we see through the laying on of hands here as well. Be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this is a great nation. This great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there 
that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are all in this law, which I set before you this day. So again, we see this concept that it was not about Israel, but it was about Israel shining the light on the Father. Only heed, only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Let's go back to Hebrews 6 where we began as we close. Hebrews 6. Verses 1 through 3 again. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Six foundational doctrines. And this we will do if God permits. What used to seem out of place to me in this list no longer seems so. I submit to you that the laying on of hands, as noted here, represents the ordinances of worship, both written and oral, that have been passed on down through the servants of God over the years, as long as they point people to God, to Christ, and to this way of life. Repentance baptisms, resurrection, judgment. These are all concepts we've studied in depth. And these have formed the basis of our foundational doctrines from which we ourselves have moved on to meteor topics on our way pointed towards the completeness and perfection that is in Christ. I'm not sure we've progressed as far as we need to when it comes to the deep meanings of the laying on of hands and the foundational concepts that these opportunities teach us. I fear, generally speaking in the body of Christ, that we are still in the milk stage in this area of the doctrines of Christ. Perhaps it's the culture we live in, a more private culture, one that seeks privacy and working things out on our own. If this is true, and I stress if, then I fear this is misplaced humility. Something I think I personally struggle with, misplaced humility. Don't downplay the powerful impact that these opportunities give us to reaffirm our submission to Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, to teach us the ways of God when we witness these ceremonial events and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and provide opportunities for others to become disciples of the way. I want to invite you to rise as we close the online portion with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we humbly come together as your people, both here 
in our local congregation and those who are joining us online. And we ask you to allow us into your presence on this very holy, holy Sabbath day, thanking you so very much for reaching down and calling us out of a lost and tired and weary world and revealing to us your way of life. We thank you so very much for the foundational doctrines like the ones listed here in the letter of your servant Paul that form the basis of our teaching. We ask you as we together move on towards perfection, move on towards the completeness that your son sitting there beside you made an example for us as we move on towards that perfection. That you help us to be witnesses for you using all the tools that are there for us. That we see this laying on of hands and all that it represents. That we don't forget that we are at your service. That we humbly come before you every day of our lives seeking to do your will, seeking to work for you where you would have us work, where, we, where you gift us to work. That we don't lose an opportunity to learn from these experiences and to pass, to shine the light upon you through these, through these opportunities. Great God, your way is so magnificent. We, we never stop learning about your way. Please give us the courage to move forward to move on to the weightier matters of the law, the the meatier things, by locking down and ensuring that these foundational doctrines are kept, that that we understand them, that we follow them. Thank you so very much for allowing us into your service, for reaching down and calling us out and granting us repentance, granting us forgiveness through repentance. We ask you to close this formal part of our service here, to be with those who have joined us online, to to allow them the opportunity to continue in worship on your Sabbath, to know that they are not alone. They are much like Elijah, maybe feeling alone by themselves, but there are many, many, many out there who join them in spirit. We thank you for this opportunity to serve. We thank you for the Sabbath day, and we ask you to continue to guide us and direct all of us together towards this perfection that is in your Son. We ask you your blessing on all things in the name of our elder brother and soon coming King Jesus Christ. Amen.